Hey, this is John Lee Dumas of the award-winning podcast, Entrepreneurs on Fire, and you're listening to the Excelsior Journeys with George Soroy, presented by the Right Pack Radio Podcasting Network. Prepare to ignite. Is there a burning desire within to share your creativity with the rest of the world? Do you insist on pursuing your passion by any means necessary? Then you are on an Excelsior journey, and you are not alone. Welcome back to Excelsior Journeys. I'm so happy that you guys are here. And I want to take you guys back to around 2011, 2012. Um, I remember being on Facebook quite a bit, still on these days. If you want to check me out, I'm at facebook.com slash Excelsior Books. And during that time that I was that I was on there, I was introduced to the vast writing community in Facebook throughout all of social media, really. And one of the things that uh, that a lot of writers like to do is they post their pages for their books, for their uh, either their books or their business or whatever, and invite other writers to go ahead and like them, interact with them, and so on. And basically, it's just known as like for a like. Now, um, a lot of time because of the Facebook al- algorithm changes and everything, it's not as frequent, but at the same time, it's still something fun to do to support your fellow authors. And during that time, that's when I came across a children's book author named Sherry Fink. And there was something about her that I think it was just the fact that she was not the type of person to just drop a link and walk away. She was very interactive with with all the other writers. She was incredibly interactive with her page. I've never seen um, at that time, I had never seen an author so busy with their page, and it was so inspiring to watch post after post after post come up and everything. I was just like, that is somebody I definitely need to watch out for, and it's definitely somebody that I would love to emulate from my own page. And not only was I able to follow her, but she and I eventually became friends. And even better, in 2017, when I was vice president and conference chair for the Missouri Writers Guild, she got to be our keynote speaker. And she even got to bring her boyfriend at the time, now husband, Derek Derek Taylor Kent, excuse me. Um, And he also got to not only teach a masterclass with Sherry, but also got to teach his own class. It was a great experience working with the two of them. And it was that befriending from Sherry that also led me to assist Derek with working on an audiobook that would eventually go on to win a reader's favorite book award, um, uh, audiobook award. So it's something that I'm really, really proud of, and it's a real pleasure to have both of them here to talk about their Excelsior journeys. Um, allow me to introduce Sherry Kent and Derek Taylor Kent. My friends, how are you? Great, how are you doing? I, yeah, I, I'm... Um, I'm I'm doing great, and I'm really really grateful that you guys could uh, could find your time to be here. I know how busy you guys are. Um, in fact, you guys are so busy that you are currently starting up a brand new um, collaboration together. Before we get into further into the interview, before we go all the way back, let's uh, let's let our audience know what you're working on now. I understand that this is a special project 
that you guys have recently unveiled called Whimsical World. Tell us about that. Yes. So Whimsical World is the name of our company. And the way we see it is it's an empowering brand that inspires delights and educates kids of all ages while planting seeds of self-esteem and high achievement. And we are so excited to inspire kids to believe in themselves and to fall in love with reading through the power of whimsy and imagination. Perfect. <laughs> that's awesome. That is, that is, that's perfect. And that's exactly what this show is all about as well. Um, I believe the, um, the current uh, president of the St. Louis Writers Guild and also the head of the Right Pack Radio Network, David Lucas, said it best when he said that this show is all about um, exploding the human potential. That was what he was, uh, that, that was what he said uh, when we first unveiled this show. And it's something that definitely, definitely rings true. And what you guys have with Whimsical World is a perfect match for that. So, um, if you will, uh, let's go ahead and take a little trip back in time. Um, I understand that, you know, you guys have really, you know, like worked so hard on both of your brands, on both of your stories and everything, but what was that defining moment? Do you remember that defining moment that led you to believe, I want to tell stories? What was that moment like? Um, for me, I, I mean, I was always that kid that was creative and like creating all kinds of things. Um, I loved writing books. As soon as I learned to hold a pencil, I was trying to like write stories and draw things and express myself that way. Um, I was also constantly making things up and creating little businesses. Like by the time I was eight years old, I had three or four little businesses I was running from home and going awesome. door to door and selling like greeting cards and stuff like that. Like. Once I, when I was a little bit older, I choreographed a musical featuring the neighborhood kids, and then I charged their parents a quarter to come see it in my backyard. That is fantastic. What was the musical? I was, I was that kid. Like that was fun for me. Like when I played Barbies with my sister, my Barbies all had businesses, and I used to annoy her. <laughs> <laughs> so I think it was just kind of in my blood. No one in my family. Um, was an entrepreneur. They had never known anyone like me before. So they weren't quite understanding of, of why do you play like that? Like, <laughs> that seems like work. But for me, that's always been fun. And I, I think um, I've always had that that sense of wonder and whimsy. Like, I like to say I'm, I'm still an eight-year-old girl. I, <laughs> and so, I, I also have to say that, uh, I also have to say to our, to our uh, listeners, um, yeah, it definitely, it whimsy is a perfect word to describe Sherry because you can see all these great pictures of her, like on her, on her own website. Um, and you know, like, especially the mermaid pictures, those, those are fantastic. And, um, wearing different colored wigs and everything. It's, it's definitely something that she comes across as someone that any kid would look up and say, I want to be your friend. Can I be your friend? <laughs> Thank you. I love that description. Yeah. So I um wasn't until, I didn't start trying to do it professionally until 2011. Um, really? That it was it was only that recent. Yes. Yes. I um I had written. So I I had grown up very very modestly in rural Virginia. And during that time, my mom planted a seed in me that I would be the first person in my entire family to ever go to college. 
And I didn't know what that was, but I could tell it was really important to her. And so I kind of put all my creative, entrepreneurial, artistic stuff aside. And I focused on doing really well and, and getting good grades in school so that I could get a scholarship to go to college. Mm. And, and I did. And I worked really, really hard. And I liked it so much. I, while I was in the corporate world, I went out and got my master's degree and then got a business management certificate later. And I climbed the corporate ladder. And I did that for over 12 years. And wow. I got up to the top of the ladder uh, at my company. I was the first female executive. And, and then I realized the ladder was up against the wrong wall because I kept thinking when I achieve this, it'll feel this way. When I get that promotion, it will, it will be better. When I switch to this other company, then it'll feel right. Um, but that never really happened. And, and even though I had many successes that I was very proud of and I made friends with so many great people and great clients, and I learned so much, especially about marketing, um, it just didn't feel like it was the long-term right thing for me. And during that time when I was going through the soul searching of figuring out if I'm not this marketing executive, who am I? Um, I had this gift of adversity and this woman who was in my, in my um, company was bullying me and I didn't know what to do. I actually found it very heartbreaking and disturbing and I tried everything and nothing worked. And one day I was driving to work and I was thinking about how much I wanted to run away and how my mom, my mom was a single mom. Like she raised me never to run away from a challenge. And I had worked way too hard to get where I was to run away. So I just, I felt so helpless. And I had this moment of complete surrender where I was like, help me. I will do anything to change this situation. Wow. And to my surprise, this idea came to me about a rose that grows up in a weed bed because she's different thinks that she's a weed. And then it wrote through me in the car. So I had a bunch of stoplights on the way to work and I was writing it on the back of an envelope with a mini golf pencil. And I had never experienced anything like that before because when I was a kid, I was always creating from my head. But this didn't feel like that. It felt like it poured completely from my heart, from beyond me. And that was the writing of my first book. And it wasn't until a year later when I was having a random conversation with someone after I had left the, the corporate world and she was talking to me about writing and asking me all these questions. And I was like, you know, I, I've only written business and marketing. And she's like, no, 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 you've got more. And in that moment, I remembered that little story tucked in a drawer. And I said, well, I do have this story. And she said, tell me. And I told it to her and she said, I just got goosebumps. You have to do something with that because my grandchildren need that message. And that was the first time I thought, maybe it's a children's book. And I couldn't stop thinking about it. So I, within six months, having no experience in publishing and not knowing any anyone who did authoring or anything creative because I had been in the corporate world for so long, um, I figured it out. And I made a lot of mistakes, but but I made it happen. And within six months, I had published that book independently. Two weeks later, it became a number one bestseller on Amazon. Um, I was so inexperienced. I didn't even know that that had happened. Like someone had to call me and tell me like, <laughs> to, to buy a bottle of champagne. And then it stayed at number one for over 60 weeks. Wow. And I think that is when I knew this could be viable for me, that it was resonating with people and that that message needed to get out. So I think, um, I think I've always known it on a deep level as a kid. But then I didn't fully embrace it until I was like pushed to my edge as an adult. Do you still have and that? I, um, do you, sorry, do you still have that piece of paper? I the, do. 
Nice. It's it's like gray sports almanac that Biff always kept. You know, just like, right. <laughs> can't leave that around. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and that that really was like that was the you know I I wish that I kept all of those steno notebooks that I would fill with these story. I mean, actually, a part of me wishes that because I remember just how bad a lot of that writing was. But you know, like the um, but you know, just having that nugget with you always like that that's awesome that you were able to hold on to that thank you so derek what um how did you get uh what was your um moment that made you say like i i need to do this i think sherry and i had we were pretty similar kids who then took very different trajectories in life almost opposite and then we ended up circling back around and meeting up again around the same time (laughs) Uh, I was like her, like I was always like the writer kid. <laughs> and I remember when I was seven years old, I used to read the dictionary during free reading time in class. <laughs> so, wow. I could, <laughs> so I could like just, I wanted to learn like the weirdest, craziest words I could so I could stop my teachers and my <laughs> writing really long, crazy story. Like during creative writing time, like kids would try and and there's as quickly as they could as one write like a paragraph. Mine would go on and on and on. <laughs> as I, I liked it and I would get into it. I just love telling stories even at that age. Um, and I started writing my own book, having my own like journal of writings and poetry that I I started with a friend that we kept that became hundreds and hundreds of pages long. Uh, so I was just always the I was writing skits all the time and performing them when I was eleven years old. We sitcoms in class. Nice. <laughs> um, so I was always, I thought in my heart, I was like, I like making my friends laugh. That's why I kind of did it. Yeah. I, I felt like I got my, I hope my, I started making as a comedy writer growing up as, uh, my whole life. And then when I was 15 years old, I became obsessed with Dr. Seuss, like re-obsessed. Like I loved him as a little kid. I became re-obsessed when I was 15. And I decided I want to try and write stories like he did in the lyrical, um, rhyming style but mine were more like fantasy kind of like wizard of oz lord of the Rings stories oh that's awesome those those are my first children's books i started writing and i wrote i had this whole series planned it was going to be like a whole whole empire and my mom was doing the illustrations and she was a a very well-known artist for disney and lucasfilm no kidding wow yeah um so she was going to illustrate them that was my whole plan right (laughs) 15 years old, like, this is going to be my life. I'm going to write these Dr. Seuss fantasy books and my mom was going to illustrate them. Right. <laughs> but she couldn't finish them. Uh, All these kind of, like, life out and then uh, she wasn't able to ever finish, but she had, like, really great samples. Yeah. It was kind of enough that when I graduated college, I had, like, four books in the series done and I submitted them. I was able to get a very small agent who wasn't able to sell them. Um, and I kept writing picture books like that without illustrations, um, but nothing would ever happen with them. Mm. And so then, around at that point, like right after college, I got obsessed with something else called Harry Potter. There you go. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> I was like, oh, wait a minute. Yep. That's what I need to be doing. Things that don't need illustrations. Right. I came, li- I came late to that party. I remember, like, uh, my friend Brendan Murphy kept on telling me, he was just like, you know, you got you to gotta read Harry, you got to read Harry, you got to read Harry. And finally it was just like, all right, fine. And this was during the, this was about a year after Goblet of Fire came out. 
So I was like, all right, fine. I'll go downstairs where I, I was working at the time. And I went ahead and bought a copy of Sorcerer's Stone on paperback, read it in about a week, went back downstairs, bought Chamber of Secrets, read that in a week, went back downstairs, bought Prisoner of Azkaban. And yeah, I was I was pretty much hooked right then and there. So yeah, what did you get it did you get in like right at the beginning or did you get in like, you know, later on in the game? Oh nice, okay. Yeah. I remember seeing them in I was going to UCLA and I started seeing them. They were putting up they had these huge displays on them all over a UCLA bookstore. I'm like, what is this? <laughs> I, I get kind of like jealous when there was like a hot new children's book off because I was kind of trying to do that myself. I was like, why is this so good? Like I, I just snub my nose at it. Yeah. <laughs> I, yeah, so okay, I'll I'll check it out and see what I'll buzz it up. And then I became like, yeah, right after book one, I was like the biggest fan. But I realized that's what I was into. I was like, oh I like I love world building. Yeah. Um, so I just wanted to, what I was doing was kind of, what I did, I didn't realize it at the time, but it was all wrong. <laughs> so like trying to sell children's books and what picture books are these days. I was had a, had a very ant- antiquated notion of the idea of what picture books were. Mm. Uh, so I started writing that. I kind of wrote my first novel that took a couple of years, uh, like writing and then editing and trying to get it. Uh, in a place where I want to submit it. I started submitting it early, but it wasn't in good shape. Um, but eventually I found it, I felt like it was in good enough shape to submit. And uh, with that book, I got my first agent. Oh, nice. Uh, and I submitted to hundreds. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Persistence is key, long. ladies and gentlemen. Persistence is key. Yes. Uh, and he tried to sell it, that one and didn't get a book deal mm-hmm. uh, and that lasted for months and months but he really liked it but one editor at Harper Collins really liked it was on the fence ended up passing but really liked the title of the book and my writing mm-hmm. which, the, which was called at the time it was called Scary School My Homework Ate My Dog <laughs> it was a dark fantasy but <laughs> um, it was also kind of like the title and the kind of was kind of screaming young kids, but it was like really dark, kind of like older, like later Harry Potter books kind of style. It's kind of like the uh, kind of like the Tim, kind of like the old Tim Burton shorts, you know, like with the, you know, the like Vincent, you know, you know, like the, that sort of stuff. Yeah, um, but they saw that I had this comedy voice, and they wanted something lighter and funny here. Mm-hmm. So then I, realizing I had that bite, like I had that little thing of interest, I just like okay, like I ran with it. And I kind of did something totally different that was like pure, um, more comedy, which was much more the heart of me and what I am. Mm-hmm. Uh, that became Scary School. Still Scary School was something totally different. Right. <laughs> um, and then, so I, I wrote that whole thing and took about a month. <laughs> nice. Uh, and uh, so we submitted that uh, back to them. And then like a week later, they had a three-book deal from Harper Collins for the Scary School series. Wow. <laughs> Launched that whole new like, but uh, yeah, that whole time that was when I was around thirty. And by my whole twenties, I was acting. I was always doing creative uh, playwriting. I did musicals. Yeah, like I write and direct musicals. And <laughs> I was doing musical improv. I was always had to do like getting my creative fulfillment while also working various odd jobs. <laughs> I get it. Yep. Yeah. Oh yeah. You get, you, there's like there's that, you know that, uh, like that burning fire within you. You just like you just 
not sure how exactly it's going to form, but you know it's there. And you know you can't let it go out. Yes. You know? Right. So the, um, so, um, so, so, um, so Scary School, you know, and everything comes out. You get that three book, you know, three book deal and everything. How was everything developing, you know, after that? Um, let's see. I, I was kind of plunged myself into the Scary School because I got that three book deal. And then I was suddenly, I was on contractual deadlines to write all the next ones. Mm-hmm. But I was also kind of like Sherry, very marketing-minded and oriented. So I was also suddenly thought I had to create this whole business and persona around it. So I wrote it under a, a pseudonym. Really? Derek Ghost. Yeah. Derek? Uh, which was kind of like... I, you said I Derek the Ghost? It's a great little mystery, kind of like a Lemony Snicket. Oh, okay. It's author as character. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I spent months, I worked with a company to create a whole website and I built this whole mystery of Derek the Ghost and I started introducing myself to all the local bookstores and uh, just thought like, okay, this is what I'm going to be focused on for the next several years at least. And I was hoping, you know, it's going to keep going with Scary School, you know, it didn't turn into something totally different. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, but it just, I had to launch not only my old books and writing, but also launch a whole business at the same time and figure out uh, what I could do that other authors wouldn't. Mm. Uh, so I've made a lot of mistakes along the way. I learned a lot during that time period, uh, which is which was really the most valuable thing about it, I guess, is how much you get to learn from all the mistakes you make. Oh, yeah. Some of the successes too, things that, you know, that, that worked. Right. Was there like was there one particular lesson that uh, that you you kind of took from just like okay I'm never doing that again? Uh, one thing I definitely learned I, I remember I hired a publicist off the back so I I thought that it would, you know I could you know they they could get me a lot of whether it was magazines or talk show appearances and all these things so you pay a lot of money almost your whole day. <laughs> advance on a publicist that I kind of realized afterwards I could have done all of that myself. Uh, <laughs> oh, that's... But they kind of learned from them how to do it at the same time. If they hadn't done that, I could, oh, I, I wouldn't have realized that I could have done it all myself. Yeah. Um, and also creating that persona, like that Derek the Ghost thing ended up kind of um, being not so great because all the after Scary School kind of came to an end, all my books after that didn't make sense that they were written by Derek the Ghost because they weren't horror comedies anymore. Right. <laughs> I, my next books were El Perro con Sombrero that I got a book deal for from Paul McMillan. Oh, nice. And then, you know, Kubrick's Game but that you worked on and all my successive books, like none of them have, been, have made any sense as Derek the Ghost. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so I had to kind of drop that persona and reinvent, rebrand myself, which is like starting over from scratch. Yeah. Um, for everything I created, and so I, I probably would have just stuck with my normal name and, and gone with that rather than started off with that old pers- uh, <laughs> different identity. But it, it was a good. It was definitely you know well intentioned, and it definitely had had a good aim. But um, but yeah, I definitely see what you mean when it comes to how limiting you know, that can be. Um, so Sherry, go, uh, going back to you. So the little rose comes out, it becomes a big hit 
And was it then that you realized that you had other stories, other, you know, quote unquote, little stories that uh, that you could tell? You know, for the first month, I think I was just in the sheer awe of it. And I was using the the number one best-selling status to open bigger doors. Like I, I really wanted to work with a children's nonprofit that I had benefited from as a kid. So once I had that credential, you know, so to speak, I, I was able to, to open that door. Which, uh, become... which uh, nonprofit was that? That was for re- uh, Reading is Fundamental. Reading is Fundamental. And they have a yes. website, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. They're, they're referred to as RIF. Mm-hmm. Um, and what they do is they provide two to three free books uh, per year to students in uh, low-income areas that can't afford books for their own home. Oh, wow. So, like, when I was a kid, um, all my books were either from the library and had to go back, or they were from yard sales, and they had been written in by other kids and mm. crayons and all that. But but because of Riff, I had three brand-new books that I could choose from when they were popular still uh, in my home every single year. Oh, that's terrific. So that's terrific. So I was kind of um, focused on that angle of it, and I, I had thought to myself, oh, well, I... I'm a number one best-selling author. My mom is proud of me. I checked the box, like moving on, you know, I'll get another marketing job. Right. Uh, and about a month later, I had another idea. And that's when I, I started thinking about the little gnome. Mm. And I kept seeing his face and his rosy cheeks and his yellow hat in my mind's eye. <laughs> yep. And I was like, what now? I'm busy marketing this other book. Like I, I knew a little bit from, you know, my business experience that you needed to ride the wave while it was still there. Oh, yeah. And Now's not the time for me to write this book, but eventually I, I had to sit down and just pay attention and I wrote it and I fell in love with him and I thought, oh, well, okay, I'll have, I'll have another book. I'll do it the same date, this March 22nd, mm-hmm. a year later, because that was the day that the Little Rose had come out and it was successful. So I thought, well, I'll put it on my lucky day. Mm-hmm. And then once the Little Gnome came out, uh, he, he also went number one, um, but he did it faster than the Little Rose. And then I had an idea for an alphabet book uh, called Exploring the Garden with the Little Rose. So it was like, it took the characters from those books and what I thought might be future characters from the books too, mm-hmm. uh, including the unicorn, which is my newest one, Right. Uh, years later. And it broke down that alphabet and the garden vocabulary for little kids. So the storybooks were for ages 5 to 10, and the alphabet book is for ages 0 to 5. And I thought that was really good because it introduced them. It, it helped them um, learn things and introduced them to this whimsical world of characters that when they got a little older, they would be able to read about, you know, in the storybooks. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know anybody who was producing two books a year at that time. I was still pretty fresh myself. Um, but I decided I was going to go for it. And I, I thought I might, I was at first afraid that I might saturate my own market too much, that maybe there wasn't enough demand for two books in one year. Mm-hmm. And I was talking with someone um, at the time, and, and he was like, but you're getting asked for this, right? And I said, yes. And he's like, well, then why hold it back? That's and a good, like, that's a great point. That is oh, a great right. point. Yeah. Why would I do that with an old-fashioned notion that you have to wait a certain amount of time? So, so I did. I released that one six months later. Um, it also did extremely well. And um, yeah, and ever since then, I've just kind of followed my inspiration, whether it's in children's books or completely different genres. And, um, and I've been learning the business along the way. And, you know, the, it's, it's fascinating because I feel like you have to have 50% creative artistry and 50% business mastery 
And yes, yeah. like the perfect match for me because I feel like we both have that that split. So we can understand like the wanting to be um, to have the creative integrity of your work and also the need to be able to market it and talk to people about it and all of those things. So it's been it's been just really amazing, like meeting Derek a few years ago and having someone who could connect with me on all of those levels and like just elevate together. That so, That's that's amazing. And I know that there are a whole lot of a whole lot of authors out there, myself included. That, you know, like that really, you know, push that storytelling aspect that really want to get, you know, their work out there. But as soon as it's out there, then it's all of a sudden just kind of pulling back a little bit. Just like, I hope you like it. Just kind of, just kind of like, yeah, it really is. It really is getting, getting that work out there. Just knowing that they're, you know, granted that, you know, I'm sure there are, you know, people that are out there waiting to kick your teeth in and everything. But I mean, that that's the way it is with every, with every work of art. You know, that's, you know, this is something that we all just kind of have to, you know, just make our peace with and push on. So when, uh, since we were saying before how the little Rose came out, you know, huge bestseller and everything, when that came out, did you, did you utilize your marketing know-how with, you know, right then and there, right from the start, or was it just something that just caught on on its own? Um, you know, I was planning to do a big campaign in July. The book came out March 22nd, mm-hmm. and it went number one in two weeks. Wow. So I hadn't even, <laughs> I hadn't even really gotten myself together. Like, I I was planning something in July, mm-hmm. and then when it went number one, I was caught off guard. And then I was like, okay, well, I guess this is what we're doing. Like, we, you know, I'll do an international release on <laughs> in July. Yeah, and yeah. Why not? You know? So I think it's the kind of thing, like I've always dreamt of, of being able to have a positive impact on a lot of people. Mm-hmm. And I guess in some way I'd always hoped that it would be books, but I didn't know for sure. And I was very timid at first. I, I'm actually a very introverted person. Um, I just get really passionate about certain things. And as long as I can focus on that, I can be extroverted about those things. Mm-hmm. And I think this was, um, well, I had a lot of embarrassment, I guess, that, that I had experienced bullying as an adult. And at first I was very, I think a lot, a lot, like a lot of writers, um, I was very shy about telling the origin story, but that's what people really wanted to hear. And, and what I'm finding even now, all these years later, is that that's what connects with people. I mean, I still get letters each week from people who've been through the situation that I went through or they're going through it right now or their daughter's going through it now or their little tiny child is having it in preschool. It's insane. Wow. So I feel like the more vulnerable we allow ourselves to be and the more honest and authentic, the more we can connect with readers and genuinely help them because we, we're all human and we all go through crazy things. And if you hold that back and just pretend like you're princess perfect – you know, people never get to know the real you and they never get to know the real them. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like this, just, you know, just coming out and saying this, you know, here on the show is so beneficial because I'm, I'm sure that we're going to be, that you're going to be hearing from, you know, like a lot of people that, you know, that have felt the same way, that have gone through the same type of strife and have either been able to 
utilize it and make it in, you know, make it into something, harness it into something, or they're not quite sure how to harness it. So I'm, you know, like, I'm really, really glad that you said that because, you know, this is real. I, I honestly believe that this is going to strike a chord with people. So, um, so the little gnome comes out, that's a huge seller. The alphabet book comes out. That's another big seller. And then, uh, did the little seahorse come after that? It was the little firefly. Little firefly. Then the oh, okay. Little seahorse. Wow. Then my bliss book, which was an inspirational journal, mm-hmm. and that one, like all of my origin stories, are really interesting. I think it's it's like anything else. It's serendipity, right? Like yeah. I've been studying um, these thought leaders, inspirational thought leaders, um, for years. Yeah. And I've been taking notes on the things that they said would work, you know, so that you could elevate your life and. Um, and feel happier and more fulfilled and be successful and have this amazing family. And I was like, well, I want all of those things. And so I was distilling down like the things that they taught and I was testing them for myself. Mm -hmm. And there's that business mindset again, right? Like I I was testing meditation and working out and um, gratitude lists and victory logs and all of the things. And what I found was I, I distilled it down to the things that move the needle the most for me on a daily basis. And I had made, um, I was printing them out like on my computer, like a daily sheet that I was keeping track of everything, um, one per day. And I was using that and people started asking me in interviews, like, how are you, they start following me on, on social media mm-hmm. and they'd say, how are you accomplishing so much and having more fun than everyone else I know? Yeah. And I was like, well, I think it's because I'm doing these things. And they're like, well, what are the things? And I show it to them. And they're like, oh, my God, I need this. And so yeah. that's when I thought, well, maybe I should make it into a book. And then I thought, if I'm going to make this journal, I'm going to make a pink cover on it. I'm going to make it super fun and girly for me. <laughs> and so I came out with another book. And it, and it was this inspirational journal. And a lot of um, a lot of coaches use it for their clients mm-hmm. uh, because it keeps – for me, it keeps me on track. I have it open right here on my desk. That's where it sits every single day. Yeah. Um, I go through and I write things as I go. And there's just some power about it. Like, it's it's just the things that matter. And I have in it, like, things that I do to make a difference for other people, actions I take toward my goals, um, things I do to nurture myself. I, I capture my serendipities for the day. And then one of the most powerful things, and I think this is the thing that gets the biggest results for people from what I'm hearing is that I have this thing called a bold ask. And I learned this from Jack Canfield, who's the creator of the success principles and the chicken soup for the soul empire. Okay. And it's like you, so each day you dare yourself to ask for something that you're uncomfortable asking for. Right. Mm. So it might be something small, like you want a discount on your cable bill. right? Right. Or it could be something huge, like, You'd like to be on the cover of a magazine. Yeah. Um, and it's just each day you ask, you ask somebody, you ask the universe, you ask something for something that's a stretch for you. Mm. And what ends up happening is if you ask in a way that's very respectful, like what would it take to X, Y, Z? Right. People are enlisted as a hero and they want to help you. Mm. And, and the answer won't always be yes. And you have to be okay hearing no, but there's just something about it that um, that's so powerful because you become a more confident person and people rally with you yeah. because they want to see you win. And that that's something I put in there and that I, I work on every day. 
That's awesome. Were there any uh, there any specific um, types of quotes and everything that you kind of you know took and held on to? Oh yeah, yeah. Um, well, my favorite quote is the person who says it cannot be done should not interrupt the person doing it. That's awesome. And that's a Chinese proverb. That's awesome. <laughs> that's that is that is awesome. And yeah, <laughs> it's, it's it. Yeah, it's it's um, and basically like what you know, like your your whole story basically kind of reminds me of one of my uh, recent favorite quotes that uh, John Lee Dumas introduced me to, and it was uh, Albert Einstein's quote: "Try not to be a person of success, but rather a person of value." And yes. it just seems like, um, just seems like what what you guys are doing with whimsical world and everything. It's just a very just a real, just good, positive things that you're doing for children, for the writing community um, as a whole. Like, I, I really think that it's, you know, you guys need to be people that other writers, especially independent authors, really kind of like latch onto and want to learn from. Today's show is brought to you by Audible. Audible is offering our listeners a free audiobook with a 30-day trial membership. If you've never been an Audible customer and want to see what they offer, just go to www.audibletrial.com slash Excelsior Journeys and browse the unmatched selection of audio programs, download a title for free, and start listening. It's that easy. Why Audible? Audible content includes an unmatched selection of audiobooks, original audio shows, news, comedy, and more from the leading audiobook publishers, broadcasters, and entertainers. And with this free 30-day trial, you'll have your pick of it all. You can hear books of all genres narrated by Jim Dale, Stephen Fry, Will Patton, Alex Hyde-White, Jeff Brick, Neil Shaw, William Demerit, and even a few by me, George Soroy. So go to www.audibletrial.com slash Excelsior Journeys and start your own 30-day journey with Audible today. Derek, uh, getting back to you. So what was it that prompted Kubrick's game? Because that's what really brought us together. Well, you can see my little succession. It's kind of a theme with me where I, I got obsessed with Dr. Seuss and then Harry Potter. Mm-hmm. And then I read a book that became like my new favorite book that I'd read in years, which was Ready Player One. I was wondering like whether, you know, whether that came first or whether, you know, like you were able to, you know, grab onto something beforehand. I wasn't sure, but, you know, like it definitely had that same kind of vibe that that made it a lot of fun. Right. I read that book and I was like, oh, so that one, if you haven't read it, it's where he based, uh, he created a puzzle adventure novel that was based on that author's passion, which happened to be 1980s pop culture. Very much and so. <laughs> I was reading it, I said, man, if I were going to write a book like this, I wonder what I'd write about. And the answer struck me immediately, which was obviously Stanley Kubrick. Nice. And he was my favorite <laughs> director, and I'd been obsessed with him since I was about 14 years old. Wow. Uh, I knew everything about him, or at least I thought I did, until I started doing my research. <laughs> uh, so that, kind of the idea came to my mind about, oh, what would that book kind of be like? And it kind of just lent itself to that kind of story so naturally because there's so much mystery and symbolism surrounding his movies already and be kind of like uh, uncovering all those secret hidden meanings through a treasure hunt of sorts, kind of like in Ready Player One. 
It's like the monolith coming to visit you. Just, you know, kind of kind of kind of doing that that uh, loud humming and everything. <laughs> all, of a su- all of a sudden you're smashing at bones like sitting at your computer just like, "I think I figured out how to do this." <laughs> exactly. Strauss music starts picking up. You're thrown into the air, it turns into a it turns into a full book. So <laughs> my favorite scene that's described in the book too oh it's fantastic <laughs> so I thought like what would it you know what would it be like if Stanley Kubrick left behind the mysterious treasure and the clues to find it were hidden in his movies so that that's idea awesome. was just rolling around in my head for I don't know three six months and then I finally decided it was going to be my next project I was like I couldn't get it when, I, when that happens it's, that's when I know it's going to be my next thing yeah I can't stop thinking about it uh, but that kind of led me into you know probably the biggest creative uh, journey of my life where I had to, it was like a year and a half of solid research, almost full time. Wow. As my writing, you know, it was just researching and then it was probably six months straight of writing just to get a rough draft done. And then another year of editing mm-hmm. before it was ready. Oh man. Yeah, um, <laughs> I've, I've been down that road and yeah, it's, <laughs> it can, it can be very tedious, but at the same time, it's just like, you just have to, you just have to buckle down and just say, it's just making the book better. It's making it better. You know, just, you just have right. to keep pushing. out of my comfort zone. Yeah. Because um, uh, I had written nothing but picture books and middle grade books. You know, I, I didn't have an audience. <laughs> Our yeah. was over the 12. <laughs> 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 so, and I was just so used to writing in that s- style. I had to retrain myself. And I'm still not sure I was entirely successful, but uh, I worked and worked at it. And I had, I had a, I worked with a lot of great editors on it who helped me get it as I think as good as it could be. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Those those editors, man, like they can. Oh man, they they can do so much, you know, for your book. You know, like if I weren't for my story editor Jerry Ann Geller, my content editor Rebecca Jaycox, Excelsior wouldn't be anywhere. As good as it is now. Yeah, I worked with about four different editors on Kubrick's game at one point or another. Man, that's a lot. <laughs> yeah. But that's yeah, but that there was there was a lot, you know, there's a lot of work that went that that went into that one. So like um Yeah, but even after all that, you know, I gave it to my agent and he couldn't really secure a deal for it because they all I got positive feedback on it, but all the publishers thought it was too niche. Mm. Um, they didn't think Kubrick had a big following. I mean, they're like, oh, you don't understand. Like, he has, it's not huge, but his fans are rabid. Yeah, exactly. It's just like, that's, this is, this is about quality of fans. It's not about quantity, but you can't, you can't really get, you know, get people to kind of, you know, get behind that kind of feeling. Exactly. I tried to convince him, no, it's like the Da Vinci Code. It's not like there's, you know, a huge following for Renaissance art. Right. <laughs> learn about it and it's interesting that's why so everyone loves it yeah and they couldn't convince them that's a damn shame but i actually got some help from ernest klein which was awesome i kind of befriended ernest klein no kidding yeah uh he did a book signing at a store near me and i made sure i was there this is like when ready player one first came out i was like it must have been one of the first readers that went out as soon as i heard about it it came out i went out and got it and i was just I, I figured out that there would be a little treasure hunt in it. And yeah. I asked about it. <laughs> and then it turned out there was one, or there was like a secret little game within the book. Oh, nice. 
which inspired me to do that for Cupid's game as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yeah, he ended up, we kind of just emailed back and forth about it. I kind of told him about my idea and he ended up um, referring one of his, his editors to me. Oh, that's great. Um, publisher. So he, yeah, he was helpful on the way. Uh, yeah, and then ended up getting sort of, after getting rejected by the major publishers, I got a, ended up getting a deal with a hybrid publisher. So I got to have a whole different kind of experience working with what's called a hybrid publisher. Right. Uh, where it's, um, so hybrid publishing is something kind of in between independent and traditional. Uh, so that's been a whole different kind of journey I got to learn about in itself. So with so with hybrid, you know, like we can actually kind of just give a brief explanation to our our listeners. Um, when you say hybrid, you be mean basically like um, there's no advance up front, or there's money that you're putting in. You know, like what's the where's the uh, where's the com- where does the combination of, of it all? Yeah, I think you're you're kind of on the right track with that. Uh, there's. When Kubrick's game was going, there was around five or six hybrid publishers in existence. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure if all of them are still around. The big one um, that everyone kind of, the famous one that got like $4 million in seed funding ended up going out of business. Oh, jeez. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, but mine's still around, uh, which is called Evolved. And I think there's a few others that most of them are very specialized. That's how they're able to make it work. Like they just do romance. They just do sci-fi. Oh, yeah. Okay. What I'm with is more varied, uh, but I think focuses on thrillers. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think thrillers, sci-fi, YA, they used to do more children's books, so they've kind of gotten off that. Right. Um, anyway, yeah, they have no advance that I know that any of them give. Mm. Uh, um, fees are little to nothing. Like I would never go with a publisher where you had to pay exorbitant fees. Those are what usually called the you know, vanity presses, and I most of them are are just not scrupulous, and they kind of I just I don't believe in their business. And guys. and their and their time for the most part is pretty much passed anyway, because like Amazon decided they wanted to make things a little bit more open to everyone, and you know between that and Ingram Spark doing. Um, you know, basically like allowing for, you know, much lesser There's priced no stuff. reason to, except people just don't fall into the, I think they just feel lost and don't know anything. And this is just feels like an easy way out. All they need to do is give money and everything will be taken care of. Exactly. Because Which is never the case. Bit, yeah. Just a little, a little bit of research and work into it. They realize they don't need to. Right. Um, so the hybrid press, uh, yeah, I got, you know, Top quality design, formatting, editing, everything the traditional publisher would do. Um, and I got to keep around 70% of the, uh, the royalties. royalties. Oh, nice. You know, when I do I'll get 5 to 10%. Right. Plus the advance. So it's no advance, but you get a lot more on the back end. Yeah. So, and there's, and they, they have more of a marketing, um, behind it also than I would otherwise have just by myself. Like they have a, a readership and a fan base just for the company and they do a lot of advertising. They'll boost sales. That's always good. Reputation for publishing quality work. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you get, you get all those things that uh, you wouldn't otherwise get. It's, um, so I think it's a, an interesting way to go. 
Uh, you just have to weigh, weigh everything is different for everyone, what's best for you. Right. Uh, it's just it's sort of a longer payout than it would be with traditional, where it's more, you know, you eventually, I eventually kind of made what I probably would have made with a traditional deal anyway. It just took longer. Right. Okay. Yeah. So the, um, so the book comes out and everything, and then was it right after the book came out that you decided to um, pursue the audiobook? Yeah, we knew, I knew right away I was going to do an audiobook with it, because I think that market is going, and it was the perfect uh, fit, especially with the fan base, and, and I love audiobooks myself. Right. <laughs> I listen to a lot of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, was, I was very excited about the prospect of making one. Yeah. And since I was doing it with the hybrid publisher, I got to have kind of almost complete control over it, which I would not have otherwise had. That's awesome. That is awesome. that's huge. Yeah. So um so you go ahead so you go ahead, you you take those steps and everything, and who should happen to be your narrator? But <laughs> I'll let you i I'll let you I'll let you pick it up from here. I want to hear this story. How how you got uh how you got him involved. Um, I was thinking about who would make be the perfect narrator for this book, and um, I happen to be a huge Star Trek fan, mm-hmm. <laughs> especially the next generation. Uh-huh. And the person who immediately popped into my head was Jonathan Frakes. Uh-huh. Um, what, what, what attracted me to him was that he was also not only a great actor with a great voice, but also a great director. Like, yes. Is directing, so I thought he would be able to really connect with the material, which happened to be about a great director and directing, and it's all you know in film analysis. Uh, and the main characters in it are also like there's some actors in it as one of the main characters. We could he could connect with it on all those levels, uh, which was great. And it was to top it off, we got Yvette and Nicole Brown to do it with him, right? And it was something kind of new, which I wasn't sure I'd be able to do, but. And she played a character in the book, and so for a lot of the book, she gets to do her scenes with Jonathan Briggs, and they were right there in the room together reading it like a radio play. That's awesome. Yeah. That is awesome. You know from Community, Talking Dead. Right. Uh, she's on uh, some, new, some new TV shows now on CBS. She's kind of like, but she's like kind of branded herself as kind of the geek girl ambassador. Like in that world, she is like the number one person she now is the you know, so Hall H, she's the, what are they called? The, the moderators? The moderator, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, just, yeah, just like seeing how, you know, she has evolved and everything, af- um, you know, after doing this book and everything. I mean, talk about a slam dunk, you know, between between these two to be your narrators. Like, that's just... I, uh, the that, process for getting them wasn't... Uh, I just kind of did the standard process. I just, I found out they had voiceover agents, and I talked to their voiceover agents and made them an offer. And hope, luckily, they took it. <laughs> That's it's fantastic. <laughs> hey, whatever works, you know. Like you got you, you know, you got to have that. Uh, you know, got to have those voices, man. Like those, they were great too. Um, so with that, so the you know, so the audiobook comes out. Well, the audiobook, well, actually, no, the audiobook does not come out. What happens is in, I want to say, late 2016, am I correct? Mm-hmm. All right, so late 2016, Sherry, re- uh, Sherry reaches out to me because um, at this point I had gone into audiobooks myself. 
Uh, by this point, I had already done my lessons with Jim Singer over here at Clayton Studios. I had gotten myself in front of the microphone. I had gotten myself familiar with it all. I had recorded my the first version of Excelsior that I would make an audiobook out of. I would do another one the next year. Um, but the um, I started not only getting involved with narrating, but also because I'm a one-person project, um, doing all of the editing and the mastering and everything, you know, like as well. So Sherry reaches out to me and she, first she asks me to, to assist her with the editing and mastering of her books, of her, um, of her audiobooks for both, uh, The Little Rose and The Little Seahorse. And, um, I got to help her out with, with, uh, basically just taking out the, you know, the pops and the extra breaths and everything and any sort of mistakes and stuff and, you know, put it together. I think, you know, like I think, you know, in a, in a solid package for both books. And, um, and then she, uh, she reaches out to me and says, you know, can you help me with, uh, uh, my friend Derek's, uh, project that he's got going on? Um, he's got this audio book and, you know, the mastering didn't come out as good. So we need it to kind of fit um, audible standards. Will you help us out with that? And so I'm like, yeah, sure. I'm thinking it's just like a small project and everything, just like I had done before. <laughs> that was not the case. That was not the case. But what I got was just something even more awesome because once I got the details about this, it was just like I saw that this was Jonathan Frakes, Yvette Nicole Brown. It was like, I get to make sure that their book their narration and everything gets to come out on Amazon. Yeah, I'll do it. Yeah, why not? You know, like I'll do I'll do whatever I can to make sure this works. And it did take some trial and error um a couple of times around and everything, but finally I was able to crack it. And I believe it was early 2017. That's when it uh, that's when the audiobook came out. Am I correct on that? I think so. Yeah. Might have been right around Christmas time. I remember, yeah, I remember doing, you know, like at least doing like the last bit of stuff right around, right around Christmas time, I want to say. Like around, you know, like Christmas Eve or so. It was right around the time when I, when I found out the Giants made the playoffs. So that was, that was, it was, it was a good week. We'll just say that. It was a good week. (laughs) I was not expecting the trials we had with that because I had done um, my Scary School audiobook myself. I literally recorded on a task cam in my car. Oh, wow. And it was accepted right away at no problems. I've even won a couple audiobook awards. Great. <laughs> and this one, I, had, I put a lot of money into like getting this expensive recording studio. Mm-hmm. And I had hired um, a master. I kind of did the editing, some of the editing myself. Right. It took about a month. But then like the mastering, getting it all sweetened up, I hired. And then, yeah, it, was not being accepted by ACX every time it was getting rejected. We realized there were there were some issues with the studio that we didn't hear at the time, but you heard on the microphone. So there was air conditioning or something that was making it unacceptable. Mm. And so it took yeah weeks and weeks of like submitting and no, this is still a problem. No, this is still a problem. It took way longer than we thought. But you came in and saved the day for sure. Well, I'm I'm I was glad I could help. You know, like and uh, um, when I heard that. Um, that it wound up winning the audiobook award. 
over at uh, for the um, for readers' favorite. Like that was that to me was just like that. That was my you know a good like stand up and cheer moment for me. You know, just knowing that you know that I was at least able to help with getting it over that hump to get it to where to where it was. It was really like you know. You know, I, I, it wasn't, it wasn't my kid, but I can say like it was, I was kind of like the teacher who got to, you know, get that, get that student from, you know, 12th grade, get him out and into college, you know, just. <laughs> you go on the Reader's Favorite website, I think you'll see a picture of Jonathan Frakes wearing his medal. Yes. Really? Yeah, yeah readersfavorite.com. That is, that is awesome. That is awesome. <laughs> I still have yet to submit anything to Reader's Favorite. It's something that, I mean. I've I've submitted stuff for review um, from Parts Unknown. Got you know got a five star award and everything. I was very happy about that. Um, but at the same time, it's like I'm still kind of, you know like I'm awards. Tell tell me about you know like uh, these awards because you guys have have done really well in on the award side. Um, how has that been? So when I first started, I didn't know that there was a difference in quality with the different types of awards, because when you, how would you know, right? Like you don't know anybody who's winning them or um, entering them. So you kind of learn as you go, I think, um, mm-hmm. unless you're lucky enough to know other authors and then you can ask them or you can watch this show and learn all about it, obviously. Right. Um, <laughs> but so what I found um, for my books, I had two favorites. Um, one is the Reader's Favorite International Book Awards, mm-hmm. and the other is the Mom's Choice Awards. Mm. Uh, both of them have committees of judges that judge on not just the story, but also the quality of the book, the storytelling, the illustrations, the, the way the book is put together, all of that. Um, the Mom's Choice Award is for family-friendly products, and they do two different levels. They do a gold and then a, a, a standard level. And I was so proud when my brand won, like my series, won the gold. That's awesome. Because that's a panel of moms who nothing but test all of these amazing family products. And they're saying, this is the best in family-friendly entertainment. So that, to me, weighed a lot. Um, And then the reader's favorite, I've been really blessed. I've won um, several medals from them, including three golds. And it's one of the few award ceremonies that actually have a physical ceremony. Um, they do it in Miami every year in November, mm-hmm. and they have a beautiful um, event. I, I actually was one of the keynote speakers at the, the night before event. No kidding. Uh, here, and that was a huge honor because I remember going there. I only had one book. It won gold, and I didn't know anybody there, and I made a bunch of friends, and, and then to be able to go back these years later and, and to share some knowledge and help these authors was just so impactful for me. Um, so that's the one I, I'm very consistent about entering. And then um, it's also good for other genres too, though. Like like we were talking about Kubrick's game, Derek's Thriller. Um, it won gold. Like it, it, it took the best in the whole world. And that's incredible. So those are the ones I like the most. Um there are some that are very much like vanity and, and pretty much anyone who enters gets honorable mention. And I don't like those because right. I don't, for me, I don't think that's a judge of real quality. Mm-hmm. And um, I like the ones that actually put some marketing behind it too. Like both readers favorite and mom's choice have, uh, they have cred. Yeah. You know, people care what they say and, and readers favorite actually does a big press release. And um, they've been such supportive organization mm-hmm. uh, I've been able to enter all the books that I've published to them and I, I really like them 
That's great. I did a lot of research on awards, and there's a lot of them. Yes. I think many authors listening I don't fall into a trap of submitting to everything that your book qualifies for because it's just they're expensive. <laughs> yes, that's that's one that's one thing that's one thing that I've noticed too. Like I mean, like there are a lot of awards out there that's just like you pay seventy five bucks and and you'll get submitted for this one, and then if you pay just an additional forty five bucks, you'll get submitted for two categories, or you know, and then so on and so on. But from what I saw, readers' favorites seemed like it was one of the more reasonable in terms of fees. And they actually have that ceremony. And when you go, like, they have a buffet dinner. Yeah. And you can your guest, and you can, your family can attend. And, you know, it's it's really nice. And then um, the other one that I like that I have not been fortunate to win yet, haven't entered much, only mentored one book in it so far, was the Florida Association of Florida Authors and Publishers Association, the FACO Awards. And Derek mm-hmm. just won silver um, for Best Juvenile Fiction, I believe. For Principal Mikey, so I remember. Um, I remember seeing the um, a post about that. Yeah, like uh, there was like a picture and everything with the with the with the medal. Am I right? Yes. Yeah. They, yeah. they have an award ceremony in Orlando. That's awesome. So, um, that one is also, I believe, is a good one. Very nice. Okay, so keep that in mind. You know, like authors. You know, like yes, it it can be very it can be very intimidating if you if you believe you want to roll the dice and everything and try out, you know, try the award circuit and everything, but, you know, do what Derek and Sherry did, you know, do your research, find the one that you feel, you know, works the best for you and works best for your wallet. You know, like you don't want to just, you know, throw money at, at everything that, you know, that's uh, under the sun because it's, there's no, you know, at, at the end of the day, you'll feel, you know, like it almost feels like you're buying an award or anything like you're buying like a seal or something to stick on your book. And there's more to it than that. And you, and you don't need all of that. Like, you really, if you win one legit award, it's an award-winning book. You're an award-winning author. Yeah. You don't have to, like, continue to prove yourself in that way. Your money and your time, in my humble opinion, would be better invested connecting with your fans. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, so around the time when, um, when I had finished my part on... Kubrick's game audiobook. Uh, by this point, Sherry and I have you know known each other for a few years. I would say, um, you know, been communicating like off and on and everything. And at that point, obviously more so because you know now we were doing business together and we were you know like just enjoying you know like conversations and everything about about writing in general. You know, keeping each other posted on you know like their different projects. And one of the projects that I had on my plate at that time was being the vice president and conference chair of the Missouri Writers Guild. And I was named this in 2016 at the um, at the annual conference in May of that year. Um, I was not at that conference. I was in uh, I was at home. And I got a sudden text from some from uh, one of the attendees who was there simply saying congratulations. <laughs> and I said, okay, thank you for what? And little did I know, little did I know this, but um, apparently uh, this is a little something that I've learned. When you reach out to the president of the Missouri, of a guild 
um, if she happens to be a very good friend and at that time you're a publisher. Um, when you say if there's anything I can do to help out with the board, just let me know. <laughs> she will take you seriously on, on that. And it won't be just like, oh, you know, like a sergeant in arms or, you know, like it'll just be uh, an officer in good standing or whatever. No, no, no. Um, that's when I got a an email from the president of the Missouri Writers Guild saying, congrats, Mr. VP. And, <laughs> and sure enough, you know, like all of a sudden I was named vice president and conference chair of the Missouri Writers Guild. Now the conference chair part, they didn't really tell me that until after the fact. Um, but so all of a sudden it was a matter of, okay, you've never done this before. Uh, let's see how you do. And so it was definitely, you know, an intimidating start. Um, but I do have to give credit to um, to the Missouri Writers Guild president, Robin Tidwell, for being so, so patient with me. Um, and also credit to the entire board for um, for letting me find my way and figure out what I was going to do with this conference. And a big thing that I had on my plate was figuring out who the keynote speaker was going to be. And at that point, I had seen quite a few posts from Sherry on Facebook about all these different events that she was speaking for. And so I reached out to her because she has always inspired me. So I know that she would just tear the house down, inspiring a whole bunch of authors in one ballroom. And we were able to make an agreement. She was able to make it fit in her schedule. We were able to make it fit financially. And sure enough, we got her out to Columbia, Missouri, and she was able to bring Derek with her. So that way, um, he was able to not only help her with teaching her master class, but also he was able to teach a, um, a class of his own. So it wound up being a, an incredibly fruitful experience. And an extra bonus for me that I got to meet them face to face finally. So I know my experience, which basically consisted of running from room to room and uh, sweating profusely, but um, changing my shirt, you know, several times, you know, like as I went, but um, tell me about your experience doing this. What was that like? Because um, I know that everyone who was there, even though like, you know, even though our attendance was, you know, kind of low and everything, because we were up against the Oklahoma Writers Federation, which was at which is currently a well-oiled machine, and uh, so they were able to take a lot of our thunder. And we also had, speaking of thunder, we had a flood that um, that blocked off a big part of of uh, Fifty Five South. So it was it was a very interesting experience. But I do have to say that every single person that was there absolutely loved hearing from you because they were they were coming up to me and showing me all their notes and everything that they were taking. I got to just kind of take a peek around the room and watch everyone just kind of reacting to the story that you were telling for uh, during your keynote address. And it was great to see that. So how was your experience? What was what was that like for you? Oh, my gosh. I was so honored. When you reached out and asked me if I if I was available to do it, I was like, oh, please let my calendar be available. <laughs> so I really need to meet him. I really want to meet you, and I wanted to meet your beautiful wife. And yep. I just, um, 
I was so excited to get to go to Missouri and, and to get to experience some of the magic that you guys have, despite the rain. Yes. Um, never let that really rain on my parade. Mm-hmm. You know, we were out the baseball game beforehand, and <laughs> we went to the arch, and we were like at the last tour available before the winds picked up. So we were lucky the whole time. Nice. Uh, city Museum, we loved that too. The City and Museum we, is a lot of fun. You know, like for for anyone for anyone visiting, you know, St. Louis. It's it's basically like one big interactive building, um, you know, just everything that's there. It's it's great. Yeah, it's so much fun. Yeah, and so, but, but more importantly, we got to meet all these incredible writers. You know, you, your organization was so. Um, you guys were on top of it. I was I was very impressed. We, I've I've been fortunate to speak at a lot of writers conferences, and they're not always as well organized as yours. And so it was so wonderful to see people really, really wanted to be there. I mean, they had to. They braved the storm and the flooding. And mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. <laughs> we were all very happy to be there. And I'm still friends with so many of the people that we were blessed to meet then. Yeah, uh, I, I, yeah I, lo- I, love see- I love seeing, like, you know, all these, you know, different, like, likes or loves or comments and everything on your threads, on your on, um on your posts and everything, just seeing like from people like Margot Dill, from Nicole Evelina, um, God, there's so many of them. Kim Staflin. Kim, yeah, Kim Staflin. I mean, just coming from coming from Canada, you know, Kim, you know, talk about talk about a trooper there. Um, yeah. You know, like I, it was it was just a, an amazing group that uh, that really just kind of blew my mind, seeing how yeah. everyone was. Uh, I loved the opening night. I remember we did the. First line readings of people's books. Yes. Everyone got to talk about them. And like oh, yeah. Were. Uh, and some of the, I don't know if they were editors or agents were like, whoa, if I read that first line, I would, I would call oh, that person's a client right away. That one's my client. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And that's uh, the first night we had Bob Yell. We had, like, uh, I went back and I was looking at all my lines and my opening lines and my lines. Now I think about it a lot more. Seriously, than I think I ever did before. I yeah. Like, oh, how perfect is my first line? <laughs> exactly. And that first night, also, we had Robert Yelling as uh, as our um, our Friday night, you know, keynote speaker, and That's right. and uh, and Saturday afternoon we had Tim Wagoner, um, yeah. who was I was so thrilled to finally be able to meet him, and it was just like just a like I said, it was just a really great experience all around. Like everyone was just just happy to be there and and really enthusiastic about the whole process and i'm so glad to say that i made like so many friendships from that yeah you know it was so great too getting to lead that master class with derek yeah Um, that was the first i believe it was the first workshop that we had led together Mm -hmm. right officially um we've been on panels and things like that but we never like had a solo workshop that we got to lead together and it was great because we got to care, uh, cover a lot of different facets of publishing. And for children's books, you don't often hear the indie experience. Mm-hmm. And so I think it was so nice because everyone there, they got a taste of like real world, what it would be like if you did this path versus that path. And for people who've been on every path. So, um, yeah, it's just, it was just a joy. And yeah. I feel so grateful that you invited me and, and Derek as well. And um, that we got to, you know, hang out and learn from the other authors too. Yeah. And so, so did you, did you guys get to uh, sit in on any classes? Oh yeah. As well. 
anytime that I was not speaking, I was learning from other people. Nice. I like to get the most out of those things. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. We had some, we had some really awesome panels that are, um, really awesome classes. I, you know, like, uh, we actually had uh, Wayne Uday, who um, who had huge attendance numbers for both of his classes. Um, we actually want to bring him back out for the uh, for the 2018 conference. Um, okay. And uh, you know Ben Reeder, you know you know did did a yes. couple great ones. Um, just like I said, you know, I mean I can go on and on about that particular weekend. Just you know like thrilled about the fact that we got through it. And, you know, that everyone involved had a really good time. So, like, that's that to me is just like, and it's something that I, that would not have happened on my own. You know, like, it's one of those things you just kind of needed that little push from someone. And, like, obviously, obviously you don't want to, you don't want to, like, you know, say, like, hey, thank you for bullying me. You know, but, you know, at the same time, it's just like. When that happened with you, it's just—it's almost like that kind of, you know, that kind of feeling and everything. Just it—you were able to take it and harness it into something positive, you know. And that's—it's one of those things where just like, you know, it's—it's it's something that it's part of your legacy, you know, it's part of your history and everything. And you're the way that you're able to take it and work it into something completely different is great. You know, it's something that that a lot of people could stand to learn from. Thank you. You know, I really believe that we get little signs, right? The little things that bring us joy. You get that little moment that you feel that, oh, it's so juicy, good. If you don't follow those, and I was definitely ignoring them at that time. Because I was like, no, no, I I built this ladder. I'm going to climb it, you know? Right. (laughs) did everything in this ladder i need to hold on for dear life mm-hmm. i think um if you don't follow those little pings the universe will find a way to redirect you and it won't be as painless as the other round right <laughs> so, well, i try to pay attention like when i get those really good feelings about things i'm, I'm like oh well, how can i do that now or how can i move a little bit in that direction or what's my next logical step or what feels like the right thing and I'll just try it. You know, I'm, I'm much faster because I don't, I don't want to learn painfully. I'd rather right. <laughs> I'll just be partying down the path. You know? Yeah. Yeah. And obviously like, I mean, going, you know, going down this path, you know, like it led you to Derek. Yes, so like, how, right. how did you guys, how did you guys like eventually, you know, meet up? You know, those are talk about, you know, like, you know, paths colliding in a really great way. Yes, Mr. Kent, how did we meet? <laughs> uh, I thought it was, it was kind of uh, interesting that our first books came out right around the same time, right? Yeah, in the same year, and yeah. Um, 2011? That's right. Mine came out in June. And mine came out in March. Wow. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, so after all those lives, <laughs> you know, she was in corporate world and not thinking about writing, and I was for... 15 years trying to get my writing out there. Yeah. <laughs> they both happened to kind of come out right around the same time, uh, which was pretty cool. Yes. So um, we didn't really, I think, officially meet for the first time until we were both invited to a school visit uh, that we did together back in 2016. Hmm. Uh, so there was our friend, 
uh, author Adam Newman invited us uh, to his kids' school, where there were, I think there was a big group of authors coming, around 20 authors, and we were both invited to go and do shows and sign for the kids afterwards. So we met, we just uh, met there mm-hmm. uh, and kind of got, just got connected. Yeah. And then we met up again at San Diego Comic-Con a few months later. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> and we kind of both got to have an actual um, conversation there for the first time. Mm-hmm. Like it's kind of like a business lunch where we uh, talked about our careers and, you know, our dreams and aspirations. That's and awesome. We started dating a few months after that when she invited me to uh, her little soiree she throws after Orange County Children's Book Festival. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I, do, I do this event for um, authors and illustrators that I'm friends with because the, the OC Children's Book Festival is the largest children's festival in the world. And they had 45,000 people there last year. Wow. And it's always one of my biggest events. I'm on stage, I'm, I'm at a booth, I'm signing all day. It's usually very, very hot, like surface of the sun hot. It's always the hottest weekend. <laughs> <laughs> or it's boring. Or, yeah, either yeah. way. <laughs> you know, it's a tough day environmentally. <laughs> and uh, it's all outdoors. So I do this get-together because I was finding that I'd see my friends when I was setting up and I'd be waving at them or whatever, but I wouldn't have any time to talk to them because I wanted to focus on the fans. Mm-hmm. So... And at the time, you know, I was single. I was doing this all by myself for years. And I always, I'm starving at the end of it. I didn't have time to eat, you know. And I'm like, I go to a restaurant, eat by myself. I'm all rainbowed out or whatever color my hair is. So I'm like, you know, I'm there. And I'm like, wow, I spent all day with people. And now I'm all by myself. Or I drive all the way home and then eat, you know. So I'm like, you know, we're all here from all these different parts of California. And some people from beyond let me just get a private get together on the calendar and have fun with my friends afterwards. So we do, we have an informal um, meetup and we have dinner and we get to talk and it was so fun. And I remember Derek sat right next to me and um, we were chatting with our friends and we just, I just had such a great time. And all the times before that, after that event and many others, I was exhausted, you know, from a full day of driving down there, setting up, being outside all day, being on stage, right. you know, on the hands and, and then packing everything up and going back again. And this time I felt really energized. You know, I was like, wow, I don't want this night to end. Yeah. So I knew something was afoot. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> he fell madly in love with me. <laughs> now speaking of speaking of the you know like um you know single girl and everything find finding love, since we have this you know, this segue, this perfect segue. Tell us a little bit about Cake in Bed. Oh, so Cake in Bed is my romance novel, and I like to call it a sweet and sexy happily ever after. Mm -hmm. Um, And that book came out the year after my Bliss book. And and it was different for me. Like like Derek, I had never written a a book for grownups before. Mm -hmm. And I knew from the start that it wasn't a children's book, but I didn't know what it was. Like, until I started writing it. And then during the editing process, I realized, oh, I'm really writing about the same theme, which is self-love and self-confidence and esteem. I'm just doing it for a different audience. Hmm. You know, the same messages I have embedded in my children's books, empowering people to believe in themselves and their own personal power. That's exactly what was in my romance novel too. 
And it was really fun to write. It was really freaking hard. Yeah. Um, It's so many more words than a children's book. Yes. (laughs) And, you know, that, that journey was three and a half years it came out so i was very excited when i finally got it out and, and you no, put that and yes. you put that out on kickstarter right yeah well it was part of it yeah so with this book i okay so it's not going to surprise you that i've always been a big dreamer right so with that book from the moment that i came up with the idea for it i also had this vision of doing this incredible world premiere party with it nice and we all have that, you know, like the, I mean, any writer and everything like they, they, they've seen, you know, the season five episode of Sex in the City where Carrie got her launch party and everything. So, yeah, oh, well, I, I've actually never seen that. But. Well, you're like, <laughs> I'll, I'll rephrase a lot of writers. Have seen, I have seen that. I'll just say that I have seen that one. So. <laughs> but I, you know, I really wanted to do a red carpet event where people would be very elegantly dressed and I would serve them incredible sensual foods. Well, not me personally serving them, but they would be served, you know, and I wanted live music and I I wanted to have this um, really talented MC and I wanted to have surprises throughout the night. And I basically gave 85 people my dream date in Beverly Hills. I had 11 people fly in from other States for it. Wow. Um, It was amazing. And part of that was funded through the Kickstarter. So um, I knew that 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 party was going to cost a lot. Even though I was very economical about my choices, Mm -hmm. um, it was much more than I could afford. Like, you know, I had spent so many years writing that other book. And when I was deep in writing it, the last six to eight months especially, I wasn't speaking as much. I wasn't doing as many promo things. So I wasn't selling the way, you know, the way that you do once you have a big new launch. Right. So I needed to figure out a way to fund it. And I thought, let me do. I, the other thing was I didn't have a fan base in romance mm-hmm. and I wasn't sure. I mean, I know a lot of my fans are moms and who, who buy the, the children's books for their kids, but I wasn't sure how many people would follow me down that path. Right. So I thought I need to build a new one, you know? So how do I do that and get people excited about it before the launch and get them to invest in it in advance. So I thought, well, I'll do this Kickstarter campaign. And I had all these tiers and everything was like, there was never like a straight up donation. It was, it was more like, I want this package of goodies and this is, this is the price for it. So I came up with some very clever things. I'm actually really proud of it. It was the hardest I've ever worked. Like the worst 30 days of my life. Like it was, (laughs) (laughs) I tell people it'd be easier to get a full-time job, like for real. (laughs) Right. But, um, but it was successful and it enabled me to do this incredibly lavish event where I had a former mayor, um, as the MC and I had all the, all of the things that I had dreamt of. I gave long stem roses to everyone. There was a, what I called a bliss box, um, which had sponsor gifts in it. That It was like a cake box, um, which was perfect for the theme of the, of the book. And, um, it was just really incredible. And. I, I tapped it all off with this big surprise where I had a London jeweler um, donate a five carat ring and wow. I gave it away oh, man. to one of the people who were there and everybody who was there, you know, they purchased their ticket as part of their package. And it was just really amazing to see that dream come to life. And it, it showed me too, that you can go way beyond the book. 
Like yeah. I like immersive experiences. I think that's why I love Comic-Con and, and things like that so much because it's, it's interactive. It's, it's more than just you're isolated at home reading the book, which is a nice experience too. But I always want to bring those things to life. And like the dream is just getting bigger and bigger, like now with the newer books too. And now that I have Derek here, he's equally a big dreamer. Right. And encourager, you mm-hmm. know, so it's, it's very, um, it's very fulfilling. I don't know if I'll write another romance, even though I get a lot of people asking me if I will. They want to see a sequel. And I have ideas for three more books in that series, but I don't feel inspired to write them right now. Right. Um, I'm really trusting that uh, because after that book, Derek and I had published a book called Counting Sea Life with a Little Seahorse, mm-hmm. which is um, a numbers-based book for ages zero to five. And we we're having a lot of success with that. It's a STEM book for little ones. That's great. And then most recently I had The Little Unicorn come out mm-hmm. and that was a book that I was working on before Cake in Bed and wow. ultimately put on hold several times um, as I was trying to figure out the story. And I, it just wasn't the right time for it, you know, and I had almost given up on it. And one day I was telling Derek about it and how it was almost like my biggest shameful secret that I had said I was going to write this book and then didn't, you know, back mm. in 2013. And he's like, you know, what? that's a great idea. Like you should go for it. And, so it made me really look into it again, and I got excited about it, and I just finally freaking did it. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> the best feeling, you know, like it's it's out and it's there. And yeah. There's and there's fairies, and I'm really excited because there's diversity of fairy fairies in my book, and I really want kids to see themselves in books. I think it's really important. And like, I have a little boy fairy, and you just don't see those. Right. You know, and I have lots of little boy fans. I think, um, you know, just that's just one example, but it's important that kids can see themselves in stories. Absolutely. So, Absolutely. Very excited about that. So we got So we do have to uh, wrap things up, but um, before we do, do you guys have anything? So you were saying that uh, the little unicorn just came out. Um, do you guys have anything to plug? I know we have Whimsical World. So, you know, like. Yeah, so Sherry and I just launched our our big brand together where we combine our our books uh into their own kind of i guess you know the the empowering children's brand so you'll be hearing our dog Xander tapping around (laughs) (laughs) he just came in to say hi oh yeah so he uh he's a star by the way nice (laughs) Uh, so whimsical world just launched you can see us at uh whimsicalworldbooks.com and we there's a little movie that we created that uh, it's only like a minute long that tells our story and the, our mission of the brand and a fun little cartoon you can watch uh, and I have a book coming out my newest book will be Doggy Claus Perro Noel so it's bilingual like El Perro con Sombrero written in Spanish and English about awesome. Santa Claus's dog who wants huh. to bring uh, presents to all the dogs in the world? Oh, that's fantastic. When's the when's the release date for that? Uh, November thirteenth. That comes out, and uh, bilingual books are going to be a big part of our upcoming plan. I think we're trying to have at least one or two a year coming out. Uh, yeah, so you can pre-order it now. Mm-hmm. Uh, Doggy Claws and El Perro con Sombrero sequels should be coming out the year after. Awesome. Okay. Awesome. 
you guys, thank you. Thank you both so much for, for being, for being a guest here, um, on the show. Really, really appreciate it. And I really hope that, uh, that all of, all of our listeners, authors, non-authors, whatever, you know, you have a dream, you have a passion, you recognize it, you go after it and you don't let it, don't let anything get in your way of achieving it. Um, you guys are perfect examples of living the Excelsior journey. So thank you both so much for being a part of this.